Um, welcome once again to our Bible study this evening, and we will be continuing from our studies in the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, or 1689 Baptist Confession for short. How many of us have seen the document I sent earlier? And I think it can be projected, I think it's on the desktop, it can be projected on divine providence and sin. I sent it earlier today on the group chat. But did I not send, did I forget to send it? Okay, I sent it. So this evening, we'll be looking at chapter 5, paragraph 4 of the confession. If you remember last week, Pastor Abutu took us through the first three paragraphs of chapter 5. The first paragraph dealt basically with the definition of what providence was. The second paragraph and the third, or the second paragraph specifically, tried to uh, deal with the issue of first and second causes. And even though God is the first cause, his providence does not cancel second causes and conditions. And in the third paragraph, we were concerned with the issue of the use of means. How does God relate to means and uh, what has God made available for his creatures? And today will be in the fourth paragraph. I will read the Old English and the New English. Old English, which is the... Um, the original wordings of the writers of the confession. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that his determinate counsel extended itself even to the first fall and all other sinful actions both of angels and men. And that's not by bare permission, which also he most widely, wisely and powerfully boundeth, and otherwise ordereth and governeth in a manifold dispensation to his most holy ends. Yet so, as the sinfulness of their acts proceedeth, not, proceedeth only from the creatures and not from God, who, being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. It's just one sentence. Anyways, the key to on breaking it apart are the semicolons and the commas, most likely the semicolons in this case. But there is a modern translation I found from Founders Ministries. If you know Tom Asko, so Founders Ministries, they have a modern, you cannot download it, it's a web page basically. And this is how it was put in modern English. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God are so thoroughly demonstrated in his providence that his sovereign plan includes even the first fall and every other sinful action, both of angels and humans. Full stop. God's providence over sinful actions does not occur by simple permission. Instead, God most wisely and powerfully limits and in other ways arranges and governs sinful actions. 
Through a complex arrangement of methods, he governs sinful actions to accomplish his perfectly holy purposes. Yet, he does this in such a way that the sinfulness of their acts arises only from the creatures and not from God. Because God is altogether holy and righteous, he can neither originate nor approve of sin. This is better than the first. But even, even then, it's still a bit complex. But I want us to do a bit of revision on what we learned last week. Maybe for the next five minutes, I, I'll just ask, um, what is providence? Because there's no point moving forward if I'm not sure we've understood what we said last week. What, I, I think you can, uh, if you can use the mic. What is providence? Anybody? Okay, Franklin is raising up his hand. If there's a mic close to him. Yeah, you have to turn on the mic. Providence is God's most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving to govern all his creatures and all their actions. Come again. God's... I take it slowly, okay? Providence is... Providence is God's most holy, wise, most holy, and, wise, wise and powerful, preserving. And powerful, preserving... To govern all his creatures. To govern all his creatures. And all their actions. And all their actions. Okay. It's inside and out, but it's, yeah. Any other person? I think he, he has gotten the idea across. Any other person? What is providence? Okay. But Emmanuel is raising up his hand here. As I was saying before, timely preparation for future events. Pardon? A, Providence is timely preparation for future events. Timely preparation for future events. So, for example, in Christianity, if I say divine providence, it means divine means to be God or to be like God. So, it means God has timely prepared events um, okay. before things. Before they happen. Before they happen. Therefore, he has ordained certain things to happen. That's why in Christianity, um, to say things are under control, ah. it means they're under the control of God, means under the sovereignty of God. But when I say providence, it means things have happened as they are meant to happen as with God's perfect plan in time. Okay. I think you have, you have the general idea. Any other person? Any other person? So it's just the brothers and the boys. So in this church now, it's not it's not the age of the women; it's the age of the men. Silence. <laughs> Are you sure? Sometimes silence is not. Uh, it's not always true. But now, last week also, Pastor Abutu mentioned two things that we somebody online. But those online people, they have for now. You're online. I don't open Google, but I'm just kidding. Can you, you can read it out. And who is the person? Mumi um, Tani. Okay. Okay, Mumi Tani says it's God's using circumstances and events to lead us. God using circumstances and events to lead us. Okay. Okay. I think we're all, we're all, we're all getting the idea. But there, there are two dangers that we were taught to avoid last week. Not the dangers of, um, no, there's the danger of 
um, undue fatalism, not those are three that Pastor Abutu mentioned, not those ones, but that you can move the phone from the table. Yeah. So if you have, um, if you don't believe in divine providence, there are two other options available. Can, we, can anybody remember? Two things. There are isms. Two isms. They say? Deism and pantheism. So what is deism? What is deism? Please give your friend the mic. From the example we gave mm. from uh, Adifarasin. Ah. <laughs> you see, Adifarasin was talking about uh, God handing over uh, his, his sovereignty to man on earth as if it's like somebody handing over, God handing over his sovereignty to us mm. and he now fold his hand to go and sit behind. That is not true. So that is, there is you acting as God on earth. Okay, the yes. second one, pantheism. Anybody? Pantheism. Mm. Can you, you have to, please, can you move closer to where? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. I think it's um, when the universe is God and God is the universe. So everything is God. Your okay. table, your chair, your gate, everything is God. Okay. That's pantheism. Okay. Now, Louis Beckhoff. There's, some, there's an answer. We can't take all the answers. I'm trying to just click quickly. Is it the same Tani? Okay. Thank you. Sister or brother? I don't know. Okay. Sister. Okay. So, um, there, there are three things Louis Bekoff said are the components of providence. What are they? Who can remember? Okay, let me give you the first one. The first one, according to Louis Bekoff, who was being quoted last week, is preservation. What's the second one? No, there's the second one. Governance is the third. Divine concurrence. Okay. So providence is, we can, there are many definitions. As long as you get the basic idea and you are biblical, um, God's preservation of all his creatures and his direction of all things to their appointed ends. That's the simple definition. So God's preservation of all his creatures and his direction of all things to the appointed end. And the more I was thinking and meditating on the subject of providence, I got a very simple way to understand providence and especially for the children who are listening. And I think the idea of divine providence is simply this, that God never sleeps. Divine providence is what? God never sleeps. What does that mean? It means that God is, at every point in time, in the existence and running of his world, world active. He's never sleeping. God is not like us. You know, when we are tired, we take a break, we sleep. And when we are sleeping, we are inactive. So divine providence now is God's continued activity in the world for the realization of his plan. Now, we must not mix these two things together. There's a difference between God's decree and God's providence. 
God's decree is his eternal plan, his eternal counsel, what he has done. Providence is now God actively acting to see that those, that plan is executed. Does it make sense? So, let me use a very, uh, how do you call it now? Uh, weak illustration. Before you go to the market, you make a list that this is the plan of what I'm going to buy. Eh? Is it plan? Well, you now enter the market and you now say, Madam, give me crayfish 100 naira. And you give her 100 naira, she gives you crayfish. You are now acting out the plan. Does it make sense? So, divine, when we talk about God's decree, is the plan, God's counsel. Sovereignty, uh, sorry, providence is now God actively bringing that thing to pass in the world. So God's continued activity. The only way divine providence can make sense is is if God never sleeps. God is always active. So there's no time where God takes a break from the running of this world. That's God just says, I'm tired. Let me just sleep for one year or for a thousand years and allow things to go. And that's where the two errors we looked at, we were trying to counter last week came about. First of all, deism, which is the idea that God created everything there's actually a creator. Deism recognizes that there's a creator. But after the creator finished creating, the creator put in place certain rules. Do you understand? So certain rules, certain laws. He put in place the law of gravity. He put in place the law of magnetism. He put in place force is equal to mass times acceleration. He put in place all of these laws. Then when he finished, he said, ah, this thing can work on its own. He now went away and left it to run on its own. Because... Actually, humanly speaking, when you put in place laws, things should be able to function. So when you came to this place, Mr. Brown put all the things on, put the volume, mixed everything. So he doesn't have to be constantly standing on the camera or constantly touching the volume or constantly doing the light. He has already put it in place. He just functions on his own. And one of the popular illustrations to use to understand this is the illustration of the watchmaker. So how does this watch work? The person in the factory, in the factory or in the shop or wherever, fixes everything into this watch and gives it to the person selling it. So now that I'm going to buy the watch, I don't even need to know the owner anymore. The laws have been fixed. Once it's one second, the watch will tick. It will tick. It will tick on its own until the battery dies. And if the battery dies, what I just need to understand is the laws. If I understand how the laws work, I'll go and buy a new battery. I'll put it back into the watch. It continues sticking on its own. It just goes on, on and on. So Daisy is saying, God created everything, put laws inside, the laws of reproduction, everything, just fix it, and then he left it. And the idea basically is that God is very far from his creature. So there's no meeting point between God and his creature. So that's Daisy. God is far. Of course, there are different flavors of Daisy. It's not just one thing, but this is the basic idea of Daisy. God is detached. He has put everything in place. He has now given... <laughs> the heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given. That's the popular interpretation of that one, is deism. That's not what the text means. Secondly, we're warned against pantheism. So whereas the deist tries to say God is far, the pantheist says God is now near. So much so that God is his creation and his creation is God. Remember that I tribute song? You are everything. Everything is you. Maybe that's not what he meant. I don't know. But at face value, that's pantheism. That God is everything and everything is God. So the pantheist basically blurs the distinction between God 
and his creature. The day is, first of all, in deism, there's no such thing as providence because God has left everything to run on his own. The pantheist, there's still no providence because if you can't, if you can't say this is creature, creature and a creator, then how can one govern? Everything is mixed together. So the world is absorbed into God and God is absorbed into the I think these are the two things that they were trying to think. Or one person is saying, God is far. The other person is saying, no, God is not so far. God is near. And both categories are missing it. So that's providence. God never sleeps. God is actively seeing to it that his plans are accomplished. The woman makes the list and the plan to go to the market. And she goes and buys it. God has had his decree. He has fixed everything in place, he has his mutable counsel, and now he now actively works to see that what he has decreed comes to pass. Paragraph 4 wants us to deal with the matter of divine providence and sin, but sin in general, because paragraph 4, paragraph 5, and paragraph 6 are all dealing with sin in one way or the other, if you read it carefully. But paragraph 4 wants us to understand the relationship between God's providence and sin in general. And as we look at it, I think there are three things that we can note in this paragraph. The first part of it says, The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God are so thoroughly demonstrated in his providence that his sovereign plan includes even the first fall and every other sinful action, both of angels and humans. So what is the first thing we must learn tonight? Is that God's providence extends even to sin. God's providence, divine providence, extends to sin. Some, some passages we've read before. Can we turn to uh, Psalms 103? Psalms 103. Verse 19. So 103 verse 19 says, the Lord, okay, the Lord you can has read. established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom moves above. Can, can, can we be reading slowly tonight? Let's, yes. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and mm-hmm. his kingdom rules over all. His kingdom rules over how many things? So that the ruling of God and the governing of God is complete. It is universal. It is not limited to anything at all. Are are we we together? Look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 as well. Hebrews 1, verse 3. I'll read from here. He is the radiance of, talking about Jesus, of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the words of his power. God is upholding the universe. God's kingdom rules over everything. So, by logical necessity, sin is part of everything, true or false? Are we together? Sin, is sin part of everything? If we say God rules over all, we are not going to be uh, shooting ourselves in the leg when we now say God rules over sin. So the providence of God extends to sin. But there are some specific examples in Scripture. Let's turn to Romans chapter 11. 
Romans chapter 11. If you're there, you can read verse 32 for us. 32 to 34, maybe. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Mm-hmm. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of, and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. Mm. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Okay. Verse 32 specifically says, For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Of course, this is not saying that God has consigned the entire human race so that he may have mercy on the entire human. That's universalism, which is, I think, in the end, God saves everybody. No. But contextually, the Apostle Paul has been dealing from Romans chapter 9, chapter 10 to chapter 11 about the salvation of Israel and how the Gentiles were grafted in. Can you remember? We We finished the book of Romans this year. Yeah, earlier this year. And we did Romans 11 towards the end, latter part of last year. So the Apostle Paul is saying that as it relates to this divine plan of God, which is very, very deep and great and uh, basically too deep for us to understand, God consigned both the Jews and the Gentiles to disobedience. God consigned them to disobedience. Of course. What is Paul saying? If you remember Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2, the apostle had been talking about God giving people a way to their sin. Now, the giving away of God is even an activity. The giving away, sometimes we think giving away, when God gives people over to their sin, God just looks, no, God gives them away. God leaves them to their sins. God abandons people. And that's an act. Activity is an active action, using the same words over and over again. But God consigned both the Jews and Gentiles to disobedience to the end that eventually he may have mercy on all. 1 Kings chapter 22. 1 Kings chapter 22. Mm, Let me see where we would read from. Can somebody read for us from verse 19? Do we know the background? We know the background to the story, right? So Ahab wants to go to war, and they've been telling him, go and conquer, go and do everything. And then there's one prophet in verse 19. Bro, Mark, please read. So, but Sheba went to King Solomon. No, 1 Kings 22, verse 19. And, and Micaiah mm-hmm. said, yeah. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out. And I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Yeah. So God was governing even the lies 
that the prophets were all given to Ahab. The point of this is, that when we talk about the providence of God, we are not merely talking about God's, let me not say, God's goodness to us. It's but a subset of the providence of God. It includes God's governing of everything. Not just that you wanted to travel to Abuja, and then somehow you missed the first bus, and the bus got an accident. And the second bus you followed was the one that reached Abuja. That's providence, but that's not all. Sometimes we think providence is merely God putting things in place so that things work well for us. God's providence extends even to sin. And the confession gives us two categories, even to the first fall and every other sinful action of angels and humans. We just looked at some examples. But logically, if God rules over all, God also rules over every action of angels and humans, including sin. The question that may arise in your heart then is, how does this work? How does God rule over sinful actions? And look at the second part. It says God's providence over sinful actions does not occur by simple permission, negatively. The second thing the confession wants us to learn is that sin does not happen by mere permission. You know, sometimes we talk about God permits something. See, God permitted it. God permitted it. And what we are saying, of course, permission is a good way to talk about how God relates with sin. But there's a kind of permission where the child wants to do something, comes to the father and says, Daddy, I want to play football outside. And then the father says, no, don't go and play football. And then the boy starts crying and crying. And the father now says, okay, go and play football. The father's initial reaction was, I don't want you to, are we following the story? I don't want you to play football. Well, because you are disturbing me, and now it's against my will, but I'm permitting you to go play football. Sometimes people talk about God's permission that way. That God is just allowing people to do what they want to do, despite him being against it. It's like God is frowning. You know the story of Balaam? He said that's the permissive will of God. So God was frowning as Balaam was going. God was just allowing him to go because he was stubborn. Mm -mm. God's permission is not, that's why the confession, the old English says, bare permission. Of course, God permits sin to happen, but it's not bare permission. Bare permission meaning that God is not actively involved in the matter. He's just saying, mm, go and do your own thing. That kind of a behavior. That's not how God relates with sin. Are we together? I will read it again. God's providence over sinful actions does not happen, does not occur by simple permission. That's negatively. Positively. God most wisely and powerfully limits, that's the first thing, and in other ways, arranges and governs sinful actions. God is active. God is active. God never sleeps. I'll read it again. God most wisely and powerfully limits and in other ways arranges and governs sinful actions. So God is not like the father who is frowning and say, ah, you are disturbing me, you are disturbing me. Go and play football. God is involved in the letting go to sin, the permission to sin. And the confession gives us three things. Limiting. The old Original word is bounding or boundeth. Secondly, God arranges. 
The old is orderless. Thirdly, God governs. And let's look at some scriptures to explain this. Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5 to 7. I'll read from my end. Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10. God limits, arranges, and governs sinful actions. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation, I send Assyria. That's the hymn in this particular passage. And against the people of my wrath, I command Assyria to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But Assyria does not so intend, and the heart of Assyria does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. Verse 12. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. What is happening here? God wants to punish his people. That's the context. And God is saying that it is the sinfulness of the king of Assyria, let me not say king of Assyria, that he is going to use to punish Israel. Do we get the story now? Assyria. Assyria is truly stubborn though. That's one thing I want us to understand. The, 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 Assyria, the, the Assyrians are saying, look at verse 8, boasting, 8, 9, 10, 11. They are basically boasting in their might, what they want to do, and all they want to do. But yet, it is God who is limiting. Look at verse 12. It says, when the Lord has finished all his work. So even in the madness of the Assyrians, they were not going to finish the people of Israel. What they are doing is sinful. And God is going to punish Assyria for Assyrians' sins. Are we together? We are looking lost. Are we together? Yeah. What Assyria is doing is sinful. Assyria is boasting that I will finish nations. I have this. I have that. Yet, in, this, in, the, in the boastful conquering of Assyria, God is so limited that even at the end of chapter 10, God talks about a remnant. They will not finish his people. The sins of Assyria will be used to further the purpose of God. Assyria will not end Israel. Assyria cannot end God's people. Are we together? Is it sinful what Assyria is doing? Yes. Is God going to punish them for their sins? Yes. But God is using them to punish his own people, to discipline them. So the sins of Assyria are being used by God to discipline Israel. So when Moses was leaving them, and Moses was talking about the punishment if they broke the covenant, how did God achieve that punishment using Assyria? God said, I'll send you away from my land, and my land will have Sabbath rest. How did that happen? God used the sinful desires and selfish desires of Assyria and the king of Assyria to accomplish his purpose with the children of Israel. Yet even, Assyria could not bring an end to Israel. They were limited by God. And God said when they are finished doing the one he wants them to do, he will punish Assyria by himself. Does it make any sense? So the sin of Assyria will not go out of bounds, basically. God is going to limit it, and God is going to use it to accomplish his own purposes. Genesis chapter 45, verse 5. 
Genesis chapter 45, verse 5. Verse 4. And Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. God ordered the affairs of Joseph. The actions of his brothers were sinful. But it was a sinful action that God ordered to get Joseph to save lives. Does it make sense? That's providence. How does God relate to sinful actions? God moves, basically, in the actions of sinners to accomplish his purposes. Genesis chapter 50, there's a repeat of the same thing. He said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So when they were carrying out their sinful actions, selling their blood, it was, there was wickedness in their hearts. So it's not as if they were like, okay, maybe God will see our brother through. As we are sending him away, maybe God will pick him. I think there's a story like that. That you put the baby and send the baby away. Then that maybe it's Moses, but not the same thing. Some cartoons. That maybe somebody would take him or do something with him. And this is what God is doing, basically. And God is using the brothers. The brothers are saying, maybe God will take care of him. No, that's not what's happening. They are actually sinning. Inside their hearts are wicked intentions. But still, God is ordering, governing, limiting. So much so that even when they sold Joseph, they didn't sell him to somebody that would just kill him after a week. So God was there. God was there, active while they were sinning. And God was ordering the life of Joseph there. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. Popular passage of scripture. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So last, last, everything that the king does, God is governing. God is governing. So whether the king does good, and specifically in the context we're looking at, whether the king does evil, his heart is in the hand of the Lord. God is accomplishing his purposes through the sinfulness of whatever king. Think about the kings of the Bible. God was accomplishing his purposes through the stubbornness of Rehoboam, through the foolishness of Jeroboam, through the sinfulness of Ahab. God was accomplishing his purposes. So if this is so much about the king, what about humans? That every human being alive, even in their sin, God is governing to the end that his purposes are accomplished. And there's one last um, phrase there. He says, through a complex arrangement of methods, he governs sinful actions to accomplish his perfectly holy purposes. So God is not governing sin because he likes to see people suffer. God is not governing sin because he just wants to do it because he can do it. I want to, I have power, so let me exercise my power. No, every sin that happens, God is governing to the end that his own holy purposes may be accomplished. Does that make sense? Whatever sin, God is governing, limiting, arranging, ordering to the end that his own holy purposes are accomplished. The interesting thing, however, is that we are not privy to that purpose. We don't know what his holy purposes are. 
Because the question is, what about when Hitler killed 6 million Jews? How are you telling me that God, God's providence was over that whole thing? I don't know. We don't know. God did not come and discuss with us and say, these are my holy purposes in all of these things. In the moment, of course, it doesn't make any sense. I don't think, I don't know. I'm just speculating. I don't think when Joseph was being sold to slavery, he was thinking, God is ordering this thing so that I will save lives. He did not know. In the moment, we don't know. We don't know. And I'm going to put this this way. So we will not say, because another way to take the doctrine of, uh, the, the, the doctrine of God's providence is to say, God will always take me to the good place, the way he took Joseph. He will always take me to the good place. So that all my suffering now is because God has something beautiful for me. I'm in the prison now to the palace. I'm in the prison. I'm heading to the palace. And that's how providence. Mm-mm-mm. Sometimes even, we are going to die. Eh? We are going to die through the sinful actions of other people. But even our deaths are going to accomplish the holy purposes of God. How? I don't know. Because Stephen died. And Stephen was a great man of God. He was a general. And humanly speaking, according to our own thinking, why would such a powerful man of God be taken in his prime? Their territories to conquer. Their souls to be saved. Why would God do that? Because of his most holy purposes. So he used the sinfulness of those men who stoned Stephen to accomplish his own holy purposes. What are they? I don't know. But let's look at, look at the scriptures. Every sinful action will ultimately accomplish the holy purposes of God. Psalm 76 verse 10. If you're there, you can read for us. Surely, the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Surely, the wrath of man. There are two ways to interpret. But surely, the wrath of man shall praise you. Even the anger and the madness of men are to the end that God will be praised. Thirdly, sin arises from the creature. The first thing we've seen is that God's providence extends to sin. Secondly, sin does not happen by mere permission. And the question would be, how are we trying to say God is the author of sin or God is the one sinning? No. Sin arises from the creature. That's the third thing. Look at the confession. Yet, God does this his governing and arranging and limiting in such a way that the sinfulness of men arises only from the creatures and not from God. Arises from the creatures and not from God. This is a very simple way to view this thing. When Pharaoh said, I am not going to let the people of Israel go, who was saying it? Who was saying it? Why was Pharaoh saying it? Mm Mm-mm. Why was, as Pharaoh was saying it, what was in his mind as he was saying it? Yes, because... Mm-mm. You are going theological. Because he wanted it. It's his, it's his desire. So it was Pharaoh that said, I want these people to build a city for me. And I'm going to subjugate. It was Pharaoh that said, hmm, these people are becoming plenty. If we leave them to continue to grow, a time will come 
when they will grow so much and they will finish us. So he now told, it was Pharaoh himself because he was thinking about his own selfish desires, wanting to remain in power. And he was seeing how the Israelites were prospering. And he said, any male child they have, kill them, kill them. It was Pharaoh. Whenever we sin, this is the balance. Whenever we sin, it's not as if a man is committing adultery to, I mean, to further the purposes of God. Mm. It's because he wants to. A man is stealing because he wants to. Every sin that happens, happens from our heart. So the Assyria example, for example, in Isaiah chapter 10, it was out, Assyria was boasting that I am, I'm powerful, I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do. So it's not as if God went to Assyria and said, Assyria, oh yeah, stand up and say, you are. Sin will always arise from the hearts of the creatures. Always. God is never going to tell somebody go and sin or put it in the heart of a man to go and sin. Never. It is men that will take it upon themselves to sin. Look at James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Hebrews, James. James chapter 1, verse 13. He says, not in James. James 1, 13. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am be tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Verse 17, what does God do? Every good and perfect, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So, what God cannot do exists. God cannot put sin in the heart of a man. God cannot push people to sin. First John chapter 2, verse 16. Somebody can read for us. First John 2, 16, if you're there. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh mm. and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. It does not proceed from God. Everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, does not come from God. Psalms chapter 50. Psalms 50, verse 19 to 21. You give your mouth free reign. This is God speaking now to men. He says, you, it is you. You give your mouth free reign for evil. And you, your tongue frames the seat. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Because the folly of man is to say, if God is active in everything, why should he judge me? Hmm. God is judging you because your sin came from your own heart. God is not the originator of sin. And look at how interesting it works. Whenever man is sinning, it's to the end of his sinful. This is why God and God and man, when we're talking about the providence of God, are so different. Man is not doing it for holy purposes. Man is sinning because he wants to legitimately fulfill a an illegitimate desire. He wants to fulfill something evil in his heart. What God does with the sin of man now is that God now limits it 
God arranges it and God governs it to the end that his holy purposes are accomplished. God never has wicked purposes. Man is the one committing the stupidness and the sins. God is using it to accomplish his own holy purposes. God's purpose is always holy. So this is God's relationship to sin. This is the relationship between the providence of God and sin. So on the one hand, we're not going to say God governs all to the extent that the sinner is being moved by God. Yet we're not going to say the sinner is totally independent. If the sinner is totally independent, that means God slept. God is not sleeping. To the most heinous of sins, rape, incest, murder, stealing, God is active in every single thing. I mean, in every single detail, basically. That mosquito is flying. God is actively seeing that that mosquito is flying. That the river flows and dries up at some time. God is active. Everything, you know, that the moon is full tonight and not full. God is actively. God did not just set the rules and left. And left everything. He's actively. Any questions? Any questions? Somebody was raising up his hand. I think the mic is close to you. Sorry, anybody, how many questions do we have? Okay, maybe your question will stay up question. Any question online? Yeah, yeah you said um, God, doesn't, sorry, God doesn't push people to sin. Yes, but uh, what would you say in the situation of Pharaoh? Because God told Moses earlier on that. Um, I'm going to harden the heart of Pharaoh. Mm. So, if God hardened the heart of Pharaoh against what Moses was going to tell him, isn't that a cause? A cause causal? Like, is, is there, isn't that you know the first cause actively, you know, doing something before no. the second cause? No, it's not. God uh, does not put sin in the heart of any man. The problem sometimes is no. we have to look at the whole Bible. What does James say? Now, I want to say something as well. Eh? So, the harden of the heart of a man. Because Pharaoh's heart was already hard. It's not as if his heart was soft before. Mm. No, God, if, if you harden the heart of a man, yes. that will cause him to reject something, therefore causing him to sin. Okay, yes, I've gotten your question. Is it a question or a contribution, sir? Question. <laughs> The first, see, when we, when we come to the actions of sinful men, we should even thank God that he limits sin. We should thank God that he limits sin. Because the way I see it, should Pharaoh have had his way, slavery is not what he would have done. He would have even killed them at the end of the day. And the example is throughout scripture. In Judges chapter 6, Gideon was beating wheat in a wine press. And the angel of the Lord came to Gideon and told Gideon, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said, If the Lord be with us, where are all the good things that he told us that God has done before, God has done before, God has done before? I think in that moment, what Gideon even forgot is that we are still alive. That we are preserved. That we have not been consumed. That is God. 
So even the wrath of sinful man, the madness of Pharaoh and the Midianites and the Assyrians and the Babylonians came from them, yet God limited, governed, and arranged them to the end that his own holy purposes came to pass. God does not put sin in any man's heart though. From beginning, we're born sinners. What God can do, of course, which is what we're looking at in Romans chapter 11, is that God can leave men. He leaves them to their own folly. He leaves them to their own folly. So that when God leaves you, your heart is hardened. That's God hardening your heart. When God leaves you to your folly. That's God hardening your heart. So that you move from one sin to another sin to another sin. The sin begins to graduate in level. That's God hardening your heart. By leaving you to your own folly. But for God to not enter a man's heart and not plant sin. And say, let this sin germinate. God doesn't do it. Every good and what God gives are good gifts. God doesn't plant sin in the heart of any man. Any other question? Online? Contribution? You have your own question. I'm, I'm, I'm asking, um, since the conclusion thereof is that um, God always, I mean from James, that's what we see, that God always bears good gifts. Is there, is there a seat belt on that? I mean in terms of um, applying that in our, in our present world, um, is there a sense for which we can um, properly um, understand the very detail of the good gifts? Or do the good gifts mean I mean, we have our understanding of what good things are. So when we say that God's gifts, that is God's purposes are always good, what would it mean in you know, the human um, sense of understanding? I think it's, it's better to understand it from the divine sense of understanding. <laughs> I know I understand your question. Because if you say God always gives good and perfect gifts, so my wife is pregnant and then the baby dies. And then I say, God gives good and perfect gifts. Is that not a bad gift? Is that not all? I mean, things have happened. You are Horatio Spafford, and your entire family, you are finished in a ship, in a shipwreck. And you say, God gives good and perfect gifts. That's a different question. How does, how does God, how is that good, humanly speaking? How is that good, humanly speaking? Yes. In a human understanding. There is a world way to which that is usually applied, mm. practically. And um, I'm saying that, I mean, we are familiar with some of the names that drag that to the very extreme to the point that um they this is not from god exactly so you are broke it cannot be from god so how can we you know apply this in um yeah, actually, human understanding and so we're talking about it in the context of sin yes but he wants to stretch it to our daily lives because some things are actually bad but romans 8 28 which is what we we'll look at in chapter 5 sorry paragraph 5 next week that God even uses the sinfulness of his people to accomplish his purposes in their lives. 
All that God does is good. In his own plan, it's good. God is not evil. Now, how we feel it in time might be painful. And a classical example of this is when we look at Hebrews chapter 12 about the discipline of God. Or when a parent is flogging his son for sinning or for stealing, there's no way that son will say, this is good. No way. Perhaps if the son's head, correct, maybe the guy actually changed, put default settings, 20 years later, he might say, ah, thank God my father flogged me. It was good for me. In the moment, hardship, difficulty are never good, humanly speaking. But when we think about the fact that we have a sovereign God, who is not just sovereign in terms of planning, but who is actively governing and superintending over all that is happening to us, God does good things, always. The hymn we sang before says, All the way my Savior leads me. This hymn was written by a blind woman who, when she was three or six months, I can't remember, but that three weeks or six weeks old, had an eye issue and they went to a doctor. And the doctor wanted to apply what they call a poultice on her eyes. And so they wanted to put it on, it, I mean, it was, the medicine was not as good as it is now. She became blind for life. And she said, all the way my Savior leads me. What have I to ask beside? So even my eyesight is not part of what I want to ask God for. Can I doubt his tender mercy who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith on him to dwell. For I know whatever befalls me, Jesus doeth all things well. Sickness, hardship, poverty, whatever befalls me. Because he's not sleeping. He never sleeps, he never slumbers. He's not taking a break. And now what we will see when we get to paragraph 7 of God's active providence over his church. At the end of God's providence even is for his church in paragraph 7 of this chapter 5. So God is never sleeping. He's never slumbering. He's always active, involved. And all he does, he does well. That's what I'm saying. The reason is because we can't see his holy purposes. So from our end, we don't even know what God is doing. We can't know. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that David would bring the Messiah? Small David in a farm. Who would have thought? I mean, God so works things. Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 2. Who would have thought that it was through the sinfulness of those people who were killing Jesus that would be able to call God Father today? Who would have thought? So the point remains, God does all things well. God does all things well. And this will encourage us, particularly as God's people, especially when we talk about the sins of other people. If God were not governing, the church would not be alive today. No. Herod would have finished the church. The Roman emperors would have finished the church. They would have finished the church. Assyria would have finished Israel. The Midianites would have brought Israel down, finished everything. But we see that because of God's governing over the sins of men, he preserves his church. Left to certain groups of people, certain terrorist organizations, there should be no church in Nigeria as today. The reason why we are gathering is because God is providentially governing the affairs of men. 
The reason why we are alive is not because people are not sinful. How many kidnappers do you think you pass? You, maybe you enter along. Some people say when you enter along, look very carefully if there are three or four or five. I mean, sometimes you enter with very, you enter with murderers. You enter the same car with thieves. And whereas they stole the other person's phone, your own was spared. I don't know. Your life was spared. The same train that all of us use Google Now Somebody used it one day. Something happened to him. So, in the grand scale, when it comes to his church, God is limiting sin, arranging, governing sin for his own holy purposes. And that's why we are alive today. But I find it also a cause to be grateful for that God limited my own sins as well. That even before I came to faith, if not, we're talking about this on Sunday evening, about God holding us up. If not that God somehow limited our madness, yeah, we'll be terrible people. We'll be so, some of us will be in Kuji prison, maybe Rema, I mean, Kirikiri prison, I mean, just scattered everywhere, prisoners. We'll just be terrible. But God somehow, in his mercy, restrained us and brought us to Christ. That's something we're thankful for. The providence of God ought to make us think. Even when I'm in difficulty, even when somebody has stolen my money, somebody has stolen my phone, stolen my husband, stolen my wife, stolen my, off, my, my position in the office, stopped me from getting promoted, God is using the madness of men to fulfill his purposes. I don't know the purposes, but God says it, I believe it, and I'm content. I'm not singing that song. And I am content in my heart that my God is not sleeping. God is not sleeping, not for one second. And we can go home tonight and sleep well because we know that our God is not sleeping. If he were sleeping, but he's not sleeping. And that gives us confidence indeed. Let us pray. <sighs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for your providence. We thank you for your governing and arranging and limiting the sins of men. We thank you for your preservation of your church and even of our lives today. As we leave this house tonight, as we have our dinner and go to bed. Oh, that these truths we appear fresher and fresher to our hearts. And you grant us greater insight and understanding into these matters. Thank you, Lord, for hearing us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening, brothers and sisters. Have a good night.